Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Morning, Steve. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank you to the, the worship team. Um, yeah, there are tissues in every row if you need them. Um, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And while you're looking that up, I'm going to give you a briefly, briefly give you a story so far because it's been a bit since we've covered this. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae from his prison in Rome. His friend Epaphras, the pastor of this fledgling church, has visited Paul and as it would seem brought him up to speed on some people within the church who are spreading doctrine contrary to the gospel that was preached by Epaphras. So Paul, in prison, writes a letter to a church he's never visited, to a people he doesn't know, and to a situation which he knows only secondhand. In the first chapter, first chapter, um, Paul encourages them, them in their faith. He reassures them as to the work of the gospel both in Colossae and throughout the world. He realigns their view of Christ as the object of their hope, and he elevates their understanding of Christ as sovereign over both creation and salvation. And up until now, Paul hasn't been speaking much at all about the actual details of the situation in Colossae. In, 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 in fact, at all. There's nothing so far that would give away that there's anything wrong in this church. The whole letter has been greeting, doctrine, and encouragement. Remember the joy you found when Epaphras brought you the gospel, verses 1 through 14. Make sure you have a high enough view of Christ. He's the object of our faith, verses 15 through 23. And persevere in the faith as I do for the sake of spreading the gospel because the world needs it, verses 24 through 29. And we come now to a point where Paul starts uh, expressing more specific concerns as they relate to the church. And we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let's pray. Father, as the psalmist says, we pray that you would remember your word to your servant, God, for you have given us hope. This time, this is your church. These are your people. This is your word. This is your wisdom. These are your promises. This is your plan. This is your glory, God. Would you today give your people wisdom and hope according to your word, Father? That we could see your promises fulfilled and that the church would see your plan to fill the world with your glory fulfilled. I pray, Father, bring many souls to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move into this next chapter here, and I kind of wanted to go back and talk about what was in chapter one. Remember, it's not that Paul, in writing these letters, um, you know, actually delineated chapter and section headings in his letters. And I think maybe some of us have received Christmas letters like that from relatives. But these divisions were placed there, piece of history, Robert Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, early 13th century, that's where they came from. So, right, they're not in the original letters. But 
There is a definite feeling of moving from one theme to the next as we cross this bridge into what we know as chapter 2. In the first chapter, Paul spares no expense in exhausting his vocabulary for the sake of Christ. In the second chapter, he tells the church why it's so important that they get this. It's not because he's trying to to amass a social following. He's not trying to dazzle people with his mastery of language or with the depth of his theological insight, but that they would pursue each other in light of the reality of Christ. That's what he's getting at here. So after he establishes Christ as the foundation of their faith in chapter 1, he begins to build upon the foundation and frames out the general structure of his message. He begins to build a lattice work, which reveals in time that this letter is one of encouragement but vigilance. It's not like the Gospels, which are of a historical nature. It's not like those to the church in Corinth that serve a corrective purpose. This letter intends to build the church upon the foundation of Christ and buttress it with the unity of the church. As we read in verse 1, he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for those all over the world who have not met me personally. My goal, and he says my goal, it's important, this is his goal, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He is so concerned for the spiritual well-being of this church, it says he's contending for them. Now, the original Greek, i I heard this a couple, like a month ago, but the Greek word there for contending is agona. That has the Greek root agon, which is where you get agony. This is what Paul's going through. This is an intense contest. This is a race. This is a battle. Other translations render this that he's struggling for them or that he's in great conflict for him. He's not just like including the church in his prayers as he says grace before dinner. His heart is in such distress over the threats to these believers that he's gearing up to go to battle for their unity and he's in it to win it. He is fervently protective of God's family. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of the character of Paul in relation to this letter, said, Paul had, first and foremost, the heart of a pastor, not a theologian. Paul was not setting out to write a theological treatise. There is perhaps no epistle that has more theology and doctrine in it, yet nothing is more important that we would remember that he was not sitting down to write a theological treatise. Still less was he setting out to produce a literary masterpiece. He was writing with a purely pastoral motive. He was writing in order to help these people, to encourage them in their faith, to establish them, to lead them to the higher heights and the deeper depths of this great, wonderful salvation. Yes, Paul was a scholar. Yes, Paul was a missionary. Yes, Paul was an evangelist. But he was a pastor through and through. And in these verses here, Paul reveals his concern for the unity of Christ's flock. He wants them to be encouraged in heart, united in love. Your translation might say, knit together. That's what it means in the Greek, of the same opinions, of the same affections. Paul says that he's praying for believers. He has them in his thoughts, not just for those in Colossae, but for all those who have not met him personally. He's communicating to them that they're part of a larger family beyond just the unity that they share in Colossae. And as members of this family, this should be a means of comfort in times of perplexity or adversity. 
It should not be a small thing for a believer to hear the words, I'm praying for you, coming from another believer. Christians often throw that term out to mean something other than that they'll actually be praying for them, especially when we say it to non-believers. It's not like we're going to say a prayer for them before we sit down for bed or sit down for dinner. It's more likely we're going to turn away and we're going to mutter something under our breath as we walk away, something along the lines of like, you know, God have mercy on them or God give me patience to deal with this person. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is in a race with the world for the souls of the church and he's going to persevere. Ask my wife how long the church prayed for me before I came to my knees and I admitted my need for Christ. How long, if Pastor Bill were here, he could tell you I was on the unsaved spouses list. This was a prayer list. How long was I on that before my name was put on a praise card? Because of the church's perseverance in prayer and the pursuit of my redemption. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about faithfulness to pursue and protect God's family, if not in person, then in spirit. Remember, Paul didn't establish this church. He hasn't had the opportunity to personally encourage these people or deliver a message to them. But he believes that what he may not be able to convey in person, he can entrust to the Holy Spirit to preserve. And so he says in chapter 1, he says he hasn't stopped praying for them. He is strenuously contending with all the energy that Christ Jesus works in him. Do we pursue each other as a family, personally, or in prayer? This is a reminder to us that as members of the family, we pursue and we protect the family. We recognize that each of us are valuable because each of us are valuable before God. Each of us, all of you, are worth the blood of Christ. The family of God is, in, is of great worth, and so we should be jealously protective of each other's faith, just as Paul is here. And as we'll see later, disunity in the church becomes an epidemic. We should not be so quick to write off what God has gone to such great lengths to establish. As we see further on in the chapter, not today, but later on, hopefully, there were what would later come to be known as Gnostics, in the church, or people who claimed to have a special knowledge of God, and that's what a gnosis is, a knowledge or a spiritual knowledge. There were people who were stealing from bits of different beliefs, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, astrology, etc. They had infiltrated this church in Colossae, and they were setting forth these beliefs that they had as superior to the gospel that was delivered by Epaphras and as containing all of the truths necessary to ensure a right knowledge of God. A gnosis. These are the, there are people who purported that God was simply too magnificent for us to be able to be ushered into the throne room of the Almighty simply based on the merits of Christ. A God who's satisfied with such a simple profession of faith must be no God at all. And so they had these extra things. He's grander than that, they'd say. He's more holy than that. His righteousness is more demanding than that. You cheapen God's righteousness by declaring an inability to be holy and then stroll in on the coattails of Christ. Where's the justice? Where's the personal sacrifice? And people believed. And people continue to believe that salvation is the result of the personal working out of your sin. Why do we believe this? What is it about this What is it about us that keeps us from believing 
that grace is sufficient. What is it about man that we can have this offer of salvation held out before us and accept it and you're accepted by God, free and clear, no strings attached, but we grab it with only one hand and with the other hand. We need, we need that other hand free. We have to use that to write checks to charities or to post on social media or maybe post on social media about us writing checks to charities, Right? We have to make a name for ourselves. We have to be seen as the ones with the answers. How fortunate God is to have us working on his public relations team. Finally, someone who can show the world that not all Christians are judgmental hypocrites. I'm exactly what God needed. Why do we do that? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why Paul started out so strong here. He has to. He's fighting a nature which is rooted in pride, in self-sufficiency, in self-righteousness. Our nature isn't to accept grace. It just isn't. Mine isn't. It just generates grates against our pride, doesn't it? And does anybody else do this when you're, you're riding with someone and they stop to get you a coffee or a, or a burrito or something and you have this little argument about who's going to pay for it and then they finally say, no, let me pay for it. No, I'll pay for it. They wind up grabbing the credit card and paying for it and then you somehow, when they're not looking, you're stuffing money into their seat cushions or their glove box? When they're not looking, is that just me? I mean, please tell me it's not just me. Does anybody else do this? Okay, one part, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that probably says something about my spiritual condition, maybe. Probably, definitely, definitely does. But I know that there are very few people who can easily accept the idea of getting something for nothing. There's a string attached. There's an expectation for reciprocity or there's the insinuation of charity. There's got to be something. You wouldn't just buy me a cup of coffee or a burrito unless you needed something from me or unless you thought you were superior to me and I needed your charity. That I'm helping you work out your salvation by helping you fill your karma bank. So when these teachers come along and they set forth these ideas they appeal to our self of self, sense of self-sufficiency. They assuage our egos. We're all too eager to show God or to show each other how deserving of grace we are, as if that isn't an oxymoron. I think Mike was telling the kids in youth group this week, grace and mercy. I remember which one it was. Grace is not getting what you, or getting what you do deserve, and mercy is not grace. Mike, help me out here. <laughs> Grace is not getting what you do deserve, and mercy is getting what you don't deserve, or the other way around, whatever. But the point that we can deserve grace, that's like the opposite of grace. Talk to Mike after the sermon. <laughs> He'll fill you in. But we somehow think that we have to contribute to God's mercy in order to ensure it. That's what cheapens grace. That's saying that Christ was almost good enough. Paul's concern here is that these people don't run after these hollow and these deceptive philosophies to pursue this special knowledge or this special favor. And the reason they look for it, he's saying, is because they haven't attained the full riches of complete understanding of the mystery of God, namely Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Paul wants them to understand there's nothing else needed. 
He doesn't want there to be any question in the mind of the Colossians. The whole first chapter was Paul preemptively stating in, in the building of, to the claims of this chapter that Christ is enough. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Christ is all. And if you don't believe that, if you believe that your salvation can be secured with Christ, but must be sustained or augmented in some way through personal acts of piety or self-deprivation or whatever it is that you think you need to do to contribute to your salvation other than complete surrender, then you minimize the glory of Christ because in your mind, he's not grand enough. Christ doesn't need another cross on the hill. His was enough. I don't know if you've ever borrowed a book from a pastor, um, but they tend to be full of notes and writings and scribblings and so on. And I borrowed a, a book from Gail a few years ago. Right? <laughs> a couple people a couple of gulped when I said that, right? And there were underlines and circles and highlights and red markups and arrows and smiley faces and points and ruminations and references all over this book. I think it took me probably twice as long to get through this book as if I had just gone out and buy it my, bought it myself because there was like twice as much content from Gail. But this was so helpful because this was Gail saying, this is really important. This is, where, like, this is the stuff that she thought she really had to grasp in this. And this is what Paul is doing here. Paul is highlighting and he's underlining and he's circling and he's drawing stars above his thoughts here and he's saying, this is what it's about. My goal is that you would have complete understanding. Get this. Paul is saying. People who think they need to amend forgiveness or put an exclamation point on salvation by these personal acts of holiness, they've either got a really high opinion of themselves or a really low opinion of Christ. Probably both. Martin Luther joined the monastery as a young man despite the disapproval of his parents. And on one occasion, this being one of the more formative events in his life, his parents visited him at the monastery where he looked forward to conducting mass and serving them the sacraments. One biography uh, quotes Luther's recollection of the event after beginning to recite the words in mass, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. Luther recounted, at these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to travel in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this? I ask for that? For I'm dust. I'm ashes, I'm full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, the eternal, the true God. The terror of the holy, the horrors of infinitude, smote him like a lightning bolt, and only through a fearful restraint could he hold himself at the altar to the end. This is the image of God that Luther had in mind before the altar. This is the terror of the holy, which wouldn't allow him to hold the chalice with the wine without shaking violently. 
This is the image of God that the heretics propounded, but they suggested that salvation can't be as cheap as just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He's too great. He's too grand. He's too holy. And yet this is the same God which came down to earth in the man of Christ Jesus to bear on his shoulders the inequities of us all so that we could say, I have confessed with my mouth and I have believed in my heart that Jesus is Lord and therefore I am saved. That's the truth that Paul wants to protect. And we discussed this in youth group last week. Grace doesn't make God less grand. In his grace, he was still just. He still measured out the punishment due for a sinful society, but he did it upon the shoulders and the brows of his beloved son. This is not cheap grace. This is not empty forgiveness. Grace doesn't cheapen God's righteousness. God planned for this. Read this. God planned for this glory when he prophesied about Christ through Isaiah. He said of the servant, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Too small. That's too little. Let's go bigger. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. Let's go all the way. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you. And stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Bringing many sons and daughters to salvation does not dilute God's greatness, it multiplies it. Do you see what Paul is on about here? Why this was so important for him? These people were coming in with their, their bits of this and their bits of that and their extra rituals and their special knowledge and their hierarchies and their intermediaries and their festivals with their, their Christ plus this. And people were falling for it. it. It seemed plausible. I mean, or at least it was more palatable to their fragile sense of pride than the idea of grace. People were falling for this false gospel, believing that without demonstrating their holiness and the fervency of their faith, mere grace can't possibly be enough. Paul is writing to remind them, yes, it can. The full riches of complete understanding is far superior to these fine-sounding arguments. And this is why Paul opens his letter to the church by framing Christ sufficiently high for them. Because without Christ as the dominant factor in their understanding of the world, it's not our nature to operate like this. Show me what you've done to prove your faith and your salvation. Show me how you've sacrificed, how you've served. Show me how you've earned your right to call yourself worthy of anything. Show me the letters after your name the number of small groups you lead. Tell me how many mission trips you've been on. Where's the brick with your name on it? As if it had anything to do with that. As if the most important credential that we have isn't the fact that we were once enemies of God, but have been reconciled to him through Christ's blood and now stand holy and blameless in his sight. Here's 
interesting thing about what Paul has communicated here, and it speaks to how drastically he's been gripped by the person of Christ. How many of you have had an enemy? I mean, hopefully not a lot of you. Okay, okay wow, okay. Um, <laughs> how many of you have had an enemy and have made peace with them? A peace which was in no way deserved on their part. It was purely on account of your grace. They did nothing, this enemy of yours, but you have opted to entrust them with your, they've done nothing to merit your forgiveness, but they got it. And not only are they your friend, but you've opted to entrust them with your most important responsibility. A responsibility that the enemy was in fact, prior to your unmerited forgiveness, prior to your inclusion of them in your family, they were personally dedicated to destroying This is the wisdom of God here. (laughs) This isn't how we do things. But this is what Paul had just communicated to them in chapter 1. He had just told them of the salvation they have in Christ. And he told them of the charge that he, Paul, had been given by God to preach the word to the nations. Paul, the persecutor of the church. Paul, who, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Paul, he was, he was on his way to Damascus with letters to arrest the followers of Christ, not looking for forgiveness or grace, but seeking to stomp it out. He suddenly becomes a recipient of it when God knocks him off his horse and he opens his eyes by striking him blind. And then God tells Ananias, go and bring him into your home. This man is my chosen instrument. And this did not rub Ananias the right way, did it? I mean, does this rub any of us the right way? Doesn't doesn't Paul need to to do something first? You know, are you going to just give him a pass like that? Doesn't doesn't forgiveness require penance, right? You're just going to accept him on the basis of Christ? And God says, yeah. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. But he's going to suffer because of salvation, not for salvation. Does this make any sense to us any more than it made sense to them? I mean, my, my son came home from school last Friday and he started telling me how to balance chemical equations and like combustion reactions. Now, I spent a lot of time in high school studying things that I don't understand. But that doesn't mean they're not true. I can be rightly convinced of something's veracity without understanding it. And this truth, says Paul, is important because he wants their faith to remain intact in the face of a culture which was, and still is, hostile to the truth. This isn't a new challenge to the church, and it wasn't a new challenge to Paul. This letter was written around 62, but Paul had already written other letters about eight years earlier to the churches in Corinth and Galatia, warned both of them of the same sort of thing. Theological influences might have varied slightly, but Paul's concern was for the church's unity. He knew that believers were being persuaded by a very crafty culture and disunity in one church becomes an epidemic. It was spreading. That's why he said to give the letters to the other churches. Remember, he said to the Galatians six years earlier, Evidently, some people are troubling you and they're trying to distort the gospel of Christ. But if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be under a curse. 
And he reprimanded the church in Corinth five years earlier, not to accommodate such affronts to the gospel. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's calling them out on it. Paul's duty here was to protect the family. And the only way he could do that was to protect the truth. Because the truth is, the family is only a family because of the truth. If we sacrifice the truth, we sacrifice the family. We give up the body of Christ. If you get it, as Paul has been trying to pound into, your, into their heads, if you fully understand who Christ is and what Christ has done and why it was needed, with what care the Lord looks upon you and with what riches await you as the Son of the Most High, you will be your relentless in your defense of the truth and passionate about the faith of your brothers and sisters. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says of Christians being accused of being narrow-minded regarding the exclusivity of the gospel's claims, no, Paul says, this and this alone. There is none other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Christian people, don't be afraid of being called narrow. You've got to be narrow. There is nothing else except Christ. He's the only foundation. And the world is proving it. I'm going to try not to go off on a tangent here about the dangers of postmodernism, right? The belief in our culture that truth is subjective, that reality is up for grabs, and that facts can just as easily substitute with preferences or feelings. But the fact is that mankind always tries to throw the burden of absolute truth off its back in favor of relativism and a life which can be lived within a blurry palette of shades of gray. Dr. Sean McDowell once said that the challenges in teaching in this day and age, it's not that we're able to tell people the truth, although that's, that's becoming increasingly difficult as well. The larger concern, it's not that people know the truth. It's that they know they know the truth. It's a commonly cited statistic that children who attend church up to the age of 18 and then they attend a secular higher learning institution Less than 7% of them emerge from college with their faith intact. Less than 7%. They, they are assailed with opposing worldviews, with ridicule, with societal pressure, with institutional indoctrination. It causes them to question, to doubt, and eventually renounce their faith. I first heard this statistic at a youth event, and the speaker was encouraging parents to send their kids to Christian universities as opposed to secular ones. And while I think there's benefit to that, that only serves the population of children who are going to college in the first place or can afford to attend a Christian university. There are many students for whom college isn't on the roadmap or for whom expensive colleges are out of reach. This is why scripture says that parents are to talk about these things when you walk along the road with your children, when you sit down at the table with them. Now, I, I love teaching kids Sunday school. But one of the first things that Christian and I determined when we took over youth group 10 years ago was that our teenagers, if we had anything to say about it, weren't going to graduate from high school having never sat through a sermon. We wanted kids to know as early as possible that God established the primacy of preaching as his means for communicating his word to his people. Failing to include kids in corporate worship, including the message from the pulpit, it does a disservice to them. 
to children who are going to start encountering opposition to their beliefs as soon as they befriend someone who is able to say, that's stupid. It happened to my kids when they were nine. That's what the neighbor kid said. That's stupid. And this is why I want you kids to come here. I want you to listen to preaching. I think book smarts is great, but knowledge alone is what Paul is cautioning the church against here. Paul just doesn't want them to know the 66 books of the Bible. Okay, I get there weren't 66 books back then. I get it. Paul doesn't just want them to know that. He doesn't just want them to know the names of the disciples. He does, doesn't want them to just you know, be able to pontificate over the finer points of determinism or eschatology. He doesn't just want people to have a personal belief which has simply been intellectualized. He wants the church to understand that God has appointed a preacher who has been faithful and relentless in declaring that Jesus Christ died for their sins and that in his death, Christ declared the battle for their souls to be finished. There is no other gospel, however appealing it might be to our egos, which can, will, or must accomplish what has already been accomplished on the cross. We must be able to engage in our culture without compromising on our conviction that we live in a fallen world. And I don't think the secular world is even arguing that we don't anymore. But there's cause for hope. There's a hope which the world has abandoned, but which we, those narrow-minded Christians, hold out as the answer. Christ and Christ alone. Obedience can't save you. This was Luther's realization. If we spend our days trying to discern where we stand with God based on our merits, we'll always wonder. If Luther's salvation depended on his piety, he could never have been assured of his salvation. Intellect can't save you. Some of the brightest minds in the world have made careers out of rationalizing their way into oblivion. Knowledge can't save you. I know plenty of people who can quote scripture but know nothing of grace in the same way that I can learn how to balance a chemical equation without actually believing that it works. And sacrifice can't save you. You can't stuff enough money into God's seat cushions to afford yourself the right to say that your righteousness is by means of your own activity. Not if you have a high enough view of God. Christ and Christ alone. This is the truth. Um, we have the, uh, the youth group paintball game coming up in a couple weeks here. And uh, I'd like to invite anybody who thinks they can keep up with us to join us on the 20th. <laughs> I'm reminded of, uh, of uh, when we played a few years ago. Sajan's brother, Spencer, was in our youth group. Spencer died about seven years ago in an accident. But this kid was a, just an athletic powerhouse. He wasn't, it wasn't a beefcake. It was just, he was strong. He was incredibly fast. He used to walk up the, the stairs over there on his hands with his feet in the air. And, and he'd, there, he used to have that elm out there. He'd be halfway up the elm within 10 seconds of church getting out. Now, when you go to play paintball, you're loaded up with a bunch of gear. You've got goggles, you've got your paintball gun, you probably have an air tank strapped to your leg, you probably have a squeegee somewhere, you've got extra paintball pods strapped to your waist. It's a full getup, right? It's a lot of gear. 
And the point of the game was, was usually capture the flag, where you had to run to the opponent's base and get their flag and bring it back to your base in order to win. Now, we'd go lumbering through the forest with, you know, 20 or 30 pounds of equipment flopping around on us. It must have been, it was probably closer to 50, actually. Um, maybe 60. But between the clanking of gear and the clomping of these overladen adult leaders, we'd make a less than stealthy racket as we came wheezing and crashing through the branches determined to smoke these young upstarts with our athletic and our ballistic prowess. Not Spencer. Spencer was fast. Spencer was really, really fast. And there were a few games where he saw that cluttering himself up with all of this extra stuff that everybody thought they needed in order to win the game just made things harder. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, he was a good shot. He liked to blast people too. But on more than one occasion, the game would start out and Spencer would just set his gun down and take off across the field in a full sprint. He'd run to the opposing base before people could even get their guns up to their faces. He'd grab their flag, he'd circle around behind, he'd charge up the right side of the tape, step back into our base and declare victory in less than 60 seconds. (laughs) Right? He knew that he didn't need all that stuff in order to win the game. He just had to run and grab his prize. And some people kind of got down on the strategy from time to time. They'd say, you know, it was playing cheap or it wasn't sporting. But when you look at the objective of the game, Spencer had it figured out. The objective of the game wasn't to shoot everybody else. It was to get the flag, to grab the prize. All this other stuff, just it becomes a distraction. And I think here in terms of what Paul is cautioning the church against, They're all being convinced that they've got to load up with all these rituals and all these beliefs, all these practices, that these things are going to assure their victory. And that by worshiping in the right angels and observing the right diets and practicing the right kind of self-denial, they're going to have a superior faith through superior firepower. When in actuality, the race is to the swift and to the unencumbered. To those who have laid down their burdens, and have fixed their eyes on the prize. Christ, who is both the end and the means to our victory. Can we agree to just take Christ at his word? Can we do that as a church? All this other stuff, it's just a burden and a distraction. Father God, we pray that we would prize Christ supremely, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would be fully convinced of his worthiness, our unworthiness, Lord, and the absolute sufficiency of the work of the cross, Lord. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for promising to wash our sins away, Lord, for doing so with the blood of Christ, God, and for letting us ride into the throne room of the Almighty, on the coattails of the only person who has the right to step into that space, God. Please help us have a simple faith that just takes Christ at his word. Amen. Good word. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.